still, I almost I didn't yeah. get room for my overhead. Okay. So, okay. It was full. It wasn't bad. Ready? All right. So, why? Welcome, welcome all to this lovely and pristine room where this is the least crowded I've seen this room. Like, nice. I like, I like the sparse attendance. I have no problem with that. <laughs> so, the audit and compliance meeting is now open. Um, Vanessa, could you take a look, please? Trustee Banerjee? Here. Trustee Charland? Here. Trustee Lawrence? Here. Trustee Thompson? Here. We have a quorum. All right. Thank you, Vanessa. And so, honored to be serving as the chair of this committee, and I want to extend my welcome to our new uh, members, Trustee Thompson and Charlene, and to our fearless leader, Trustee Lawrence, and to the staff, the executive team, and the staff working um, on that. So I just want to begin by just laying a frame that while I'm no con content expert on issues of financial or operational internal controls and risk management or any of the state federal regulations and laws, what I hope as chair is to create a space where you know it allows us to use our collective insights and uh, learnings and to accomplish our charter effectively. So today's uh, meeting is informational only. We have no action um, agenda. I'm going to call on our first item as our consent agenda, which is do I have to um, ask for approval of the consent agenda or just move for E either way is fine. I think the practice here is to get a motion. You're approving it, the and then okay. Vote. Do I get a motion? I'll move. Second. I'll second. All right. All in favor? Aye. Aye. I was not at the meeting, so I could not. I cannot vote. I can only vote to move, but I can't vote approval of it. Okay. Well, I can't Same as well. with yes, you. Okay. So um, have a motion to approve the minutes of the. Okay, and I will second. We so move. And then, um, favor, uh, abstentions, any no's? Okay, <coughs> the, the minutes for the November 2nd audit and compliance uh, meeting have been moved. And now moving to our um, next item, and this is more because this is the first meeting. Hello, Louise, welcome. Um, first meeting of the year, we are going to do a little brief orientation. I know that we've had our um, review of audit compliance has been wanting to do some one-on-one -on -one orientations with even serving members on the committee, but this is, um, and now with our new members, we'll go over a very brief orientation, and this is going to be faced in a little bit of discussion about what our roles in the as board are on the audit committee, what the expectations of the audit committee are, and what are some of the boundaries and other things. How do we, you know, um, make sure that our time here is spent as with the kind of um, oversight and uh, the charter that's expected of us. So I'm going to turn it over to Rick for the, over, uh, for the overview. Okay. So I put this together uh, for the uh, new trustee orientation and I wasn't able to deliver it that day, so I wanted to kind of run through it today. And I'll uh, bring up a couple of points that aren't in the slides, but uh, try to give you all a feel for what I'm doing with uh, audit and compliance. Okay? So I, I think I heard everyone was somewhat familiar with internal audit, but uh, basically, 
it's an independent objective assurance and consulting activity and I try to help uh, the board and management discharge their duties and make sure that everything is functioning as it should and that we are in compliance with rules and regulations. Okay. To do this, uh, what I do is uh, conduct an annual risk assessment where I look at the entire organization uh, and try to rank things uh, to where I consider to be the, the most risk. Uh, based on that risk assessment, I develop my annual audit plan and then I review the operational functions that I've uh, selected in the audit plan. Uh, any observations that I see during that process, I will communicate to uh, the line management, work through, make sure that I had the right understanding of things, uh, uh, let them provide additional information if I miss something, and uh, once I finalize the report, send it to senior management, then I report it to the Audit and Compliance Committee. I have a question. The annual risk assessment is done solely by you or in combination with the um, other leaders? It's done by me and I try to share the results out to let people know what I think. A lot of it is uh, subjective. It's my opinion of the controls within certain areas. It's uh, past audit results that have indicated there's been problems. Uh, it's you know how tightly I think management controls their their areas. Uh, so I share that, but uh, and and take their comments into consideration. But at the end of the day, uh, I'm it's it's my risk assessment. Can you give examples of what you mean by risk? You know, you said uh, that you have to monitor the rules and regulations, and I was wondering which ones you're. I mean that. That's huge. What is there yes, a, it is. a narrowing kind of thing? I mean, how how do you establish the priorities for the rules and regulations, and what specific rules and regulations? Board, board policies, the labor laws, um, HIP. I mean, I'm not understanding what because there's so many. So how do you do that? And then, what risk are you talking about? So I'm really talking about financial risk. Uh, organizational risk, reputation risk, uh, what things can go wrong that would make us look bad. If we uh, don't bill claims, we don't make money, that would be bad. Uh, if we uh, don't have proper processes in place and people get hurt on the job, or patients get hurt uh, because we don't render proper care, uh, those are bad. Now. I'm not a clinician, so I don't get involved a lot with clinical operations, but I look at the overall process to see that we have somebody that's monitoring them. Uh, if there's oversight of an area, I don't uh, look that hard at it because other people are. We have a risk management area, we have a quality area that uh, is doing a lot of the patient safety things, but I want to look at more of the financial processes around those functions. Are we billing? Are we collecting? Are we reporting? And uh, like you said, there's a lot of rules and regulations applying to every operation, but I have to look at, at see 
what has more regulations than others uh, and kind of weigh that. You know, if it's something that's governed by an internal uh, policy, that's not as critical as something that's a federal reg regulation governing a process. So I'm factoring that in to, to try to uh, quantify the risk within an area. So can I, can I repeat back what I thought I heard you say? Yes. That the, the, federal, the federal regulations, the state and federal regulations take a higher priority than some of the internal regulations. By that I mean board policies, uh, board agreements, um, attitudes, things, processing things that we do. And you're more focused on finance than on other areas of the organization. Yes. So there's the compliance thing, and then there are the operational and internal control things. So the whole compliance is all about state, federal regulations. And those are things that I think, even though you're prioritizing which ones have more serious ramifications, the basic assumption is that we are meeting all of the regulatory obligations that we have. In terms of the internal controls of you know our financial <coughs> operational controls, and things, whether we are doing ICD-10 right, or I'm, I'm just like, you know, and um, meaningful use and things, that's where you're prioritizing. Like, these are, these are some of the things that are higher for us to be sure that we are doing right. These are medium priority, and right. these are lower, right? Right. But when you get to clinical reporting, right, there are certain things that have to be reported because of certain federal regulations. You're looking, even though it's clinical, I would look at, to make sure that they have been reported in a timely fashion. I would look at the process and make sure that we're reporting those things on a timely basis and compliance with the law. Right. Well, Even though you're not necessarily involved in kind of the clinical aspect of all that, you are involved in the reporting. Right. And that's where I would work with quality and risk management to help on that clinical side. I try to stay out of that uh, area. You're not going to make a decision on the clinical <laughs> side. If we're already midway through the year, um, are you midway through your audit cycle of this year? And have any of your audits been re reported to the committee? Uh, I would say that I'm on time. and that, That's a, a later uh, presentation. Uh, I've finished one audit, uh, done the final report. It will be reported today. Uh, I have another one where the draft report is out. I'm waiting for responses, and I've got uh, three audits that are in process and uh, should be finished before the end of the year. On an annual basis, how many audits are in your audit calendar? Uh, usually four to five. They usually take uh, three months apiece, and sometimes I'll overlap them, and then I have time for special assignments, uh, different work efforts. I have one staff right now, so there's not a lot of uh, room for, for additional projects. Is there a summary somewhere that we can see of which audits you're doing and when they take place? Yes. Okay. So uh, the other thing I do is periodic follow-ups. So once I, I get management's response, I put it on a log, and then I continue to monitor the corrective action plans 
uh, until those are resolved. I report those to the uh, audit committee every time we meet. Okay? Uh, this is my current reporting structure, and while it shows there's a, a number of people under there, uh, three of the four that are underneath me are some aspect of compliance. Uh, then I have the one internal auditor. And we're working on uh, strengthening the team. Uh, we're recruiting right now for another audit position and another compliance position. And also the reporting structure. So administratively, I report to the general counsel. Uh, functionally, I report to the board through this committee. Okay, so compliance, uh, we, we kind of talked about that already, but it's really uh, to make sure that we have integrity, we're in compliance with applicable laws. And uh, a year and a half, two years ago, we had a compliance assessment. They identified 269 different regulations that uh, apply to the hospital. And so I've gone through all of those to see what the requirements are. And as I can, I go out and look to see that we're actually complying with those uh, regulations. And when I find a gap, then I start working with the management of that area to close it. Uh, can you give an example? So we recently opened the acute care tower. And one of the gaps that we identified was that uh, the signage wasn't accurate. And so we went through every floor and looked at where we should have signs posted and then worked with uh, the engineering department to make sure we got signs put up. Uh, what was the compliance issue that it met? The, the regulations require you to have certain signs with certain verbiage. Uh, like an ED department that uh, it's a big sign that says we you know, have an ED department, we're open 24-7. Uh, we, we have multilingual uh, assistance, you know, things like that. <coughs> Another example would be uh, elder abuse policy where there are certain, certain reporting requirements and training requirements for uh, reporting abuse situations to elderly patients in a skilled nursing facility. If you see them battered and bruised, there's something must have happened and you need to make sure that you've checked on that to see if they were abused by somebody or if they just fell down. And if they were abused by somebody, then there's reporting requirements. Uh, so you have to do that within a certain time and you have to have signs posted uh, to explain what those regulations are, annual training for all the staff, et cetera. So while we had some abuse policies in place, we had not fully implemented the Elder Justice Act. And so we've been working with our uh, social services department to draft that policy and get it worked out to the organization.
So the compliance program was established based on the seven elements of a compliance program as promulgated by the OIG. Uh, so we have oversight and reporting through this committee. Uh, we've got standards and procedures. We went through all of the organizational uh, policies and procedures to make sure that uh, we had everything that should be uh, required in a compliance program. And a lot of that was just updating existing policies, but some of it was drafting new ones. Uh, monitoring and auditing, we, we have a process to do that. And since I have audit and compliance, it's very easy to negotiate time to do some special assignments and, and get some auditing done. Uh, response and prevention, that means that whenever we get uh, a compliance report, that somebody is going out investigating that, determining if there really is an issue, and then closing that gap. Uh, the lines of communication, I implemented the corporate hotline last year, of 2015, and uh, we get periodic reports on that, and we follow up on every one of them. Uh, enforcement and discipline, we, we have standard discipline processes uh, since we're highly unionized. Uh, a lot of that is uh, worked through HR to um, do it based on the union guidelines. Uh, and then education and training, we establish training modules. They're part of our corporate competencies and they're required of all employees uh, on an annual basis. How many calls have you received on the uh, hotline? We get 100, about 25 a quarter, and I have a dashboard uh, later in the package that will show exactly how many. Uh, it's not that many. We actually get more uh, direct complaints uh, through email or meetings uh, than we actually get on the hotline. But uh, the hotline, we get a lot of HR issues, and those go directly to them for investigation. And did I hear you say that we've had the hotline for just a year? Uh, since May of 2015. And before that, there was no hotline? Or no, there was not, uh, no, there really wasn't a hotline. This one is completely anonymous and completely This one is manned by Lighthouse, which is a third party. Right. Uh, 24-7, they send us a report every time somebody calls in. So, one question. You know, as we roll out uh, the just culture over here, some of that enforcement and discipline, some of the metrics that you use within, so do you just move things over to HR? Or are you involved in some of these things, the HR issues that come? Because as that happens, you know, that the, our compliance with that has to keep track with the, you know, the enforcement and discipline as the culture is being rolled out. And is there a plan for the internal audit to make sure that, you know? Well, well you know, with regard to this compliance obligation, you know, the issue is whether or not the organization's you know, disciplinary policies 
basically support uh, you know satisfaction of compliance obligation, meaning you know are people held accountable for things which you know impact you know the uh, the accountability for compliance. So so generally speaking, just culture would not interfere with that. Actually, in fact, it would enhance it. You know because several elements of the just culture program are designed to encourage people a to report things that aren't happening right, uh, to cooperate in the investigation of things that have gone wrong, uh, which is precisely you know what this element of the mm -hmm. compliance program is designed to encourage as well too. So generally speaking they should run in sync uh, together and um, but you know as that you know thing gets rolled out, you know, uh, or as the various pieces of the just culture you know, evolution get rolled out, you know, that would certainly be something to look at as well, too. Rick, can you give, um, can you go through a little bit of the, the, I guess, the line of process? So, and use the example of the sign, or you could use an example of, of a hotline complaint. So, you, somebody tells you that there is not a signage, or did you see that yourself? I mean... Let's use the signage as an example. I'm interested in where it goes through the through the system for resolution and closure. So the particular one about uh, the acute care tower, uh, engineering was working on the signage, and they weren't real sure what needed to be where, and so they called and asked for help. And so I assigned uh, my compliance manager <coughs> and they researched the regulations, identified exactly what signage, what verbiage was required at each location based on the, the floor plan of the hospital and then communicated back to engineering, here's the signs, here's the verbiage, here's where they need to be, <clears throat> and then uh, followed up to make sure that all those signs got posted. Okay, and how, how is that recorded someplace? Is, is that recorded someplace, or is it...? Uh, it would be recorded in my compliance log to show it was brought up as an issue and then uh, the eventual resolution of it. So I keep a log of all uh, items reported to me and the date that it was reported, whose it's assigned to, and what we did to resolve that issue. And uh, I do that primarily because I don't want to forget about one. Okay, when, when you say it's assigned to, it's one of the people on that org chart that you showed us? It's one of those people, or it will be, if it's an HR issue, it will be uh, assigned to the HR uh, labor relations person. Uh, if it's a quality issue, it could be assigned to somebody in the quality department. But then <clears throat> we continue to, to follow up with that person to make sure they work the issue thoroughly, give us a resolution, and then we uh, resolve it on the law. So what's the clout you have to get it done? I'm compliant. <laughs> no. um, I don't really have the clout, but most of these issues are things that uh, they recognize need to be worked and the, so the competency of, of administrators to 
adhere to compliance. Yes, and, and if they didn't work it on a timely basis, uh, and I followed up and they weren't working it thoroughly, then I would escalate that and uh, take it to their... So how does a governing authority look at the kinds of... Th you have a log, but what, we, what you have shown us before doesn't necessarily have those kinds of things in it. Your log. Who reviews the log? At the, uh, at the bank, the, the board of directors reviews every decline loan the bank makes just to make sure that we're not declining loans based on certain criteria. So I, I agree with... Yeah, that, so that's, that's really going around. We get a subset of the things that you bring to the audit, the so board I, audit committee. I actually have a compliance steering committee that's made up of uh, primarily executive management. And every month we meet and we talk about the outstanding compliance issues and any outstanding issues <coughs> from the uh, compliance law. So move that to a board's authority to monitor the compliance of the organization. Because it seems to me, and I've only sat on this for a year or so, there's this disconnect that I've never been able to really understand how this thing works. And, and I don't think I'm, I'm a dumb woman. I just can't get it. So help me understand that process. I just, I, I'm trying to understand the board's role. I mean, I see what we're supposed to do in, in theory here. And <coughs> you've shown us reports like, you know, when Dave, um, you've shown us some computer things when Dave and you we put dates on it when you thought it was going to get done. But I know that those are not the only things that you have been working on because you do quite a bit. Well, so how do we look at what you do? Well, if I, if I could jump in there. So there are a couple of things. So if there is a, you know, sort of a known deficiency or violation that results, you know, from some sort of out, outside activity or survey, that's reported to the board. And that's monitored. Give me an example. You know, so, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, uh, you know, for example, if OIG were to conduct, you know, an inspection and determine that, you know, we're not, you know, conducting, you know, some aspect of physician contracting appropriately, they'd write a report, there would be findings, and we'd have to engage in some sort of corrective action plan. Uh, and so that's the sort of thing that Rick would put into the types of reports that he monitors there. It could be things from our, you know, external auditors. They make findings that we're not doing this, that, or the other. Those are the types of things. So those are the types of things which automatically are raised to the attention of the governing board because there's been some sort of outside activity which has identified the issue. The second category would be if we discover something which is happening in the organization which presents what we consider to be a significant risk to the organization simply because of the magnitude of it. And so this, you know, typically, you know, could be something, it might be something in some other specialized area um, and or it may come up, you know, simply through the compliance channels. So again, you know, we discover that, you know, we have, you know, failed to, um, you know, conduct some sort of required certification which places at risk, you know, our CMS certification or something along those lines. We as an organization would, you know, self-report that to the board uh, because it has a potential risk of significant liability for the organization. So that would be a second category of things. So you have outside activity identifies it. You should know that that's being worked. We identify it because it's of significant, you know, liability. 
And the third category are the items which are reported through the hotline. Um, and again, RIC reports on those on a monthly basis uh, because it's not outside activity, it's not necessarily significant in that it needs to come to attention, but it is an independent report of something going on in the organization that you as a governing board would want to know is being addressed or resolved on some level. So that might be a, a third category of uh, things that the board is looking at to satisfy this obligation. Um, and then the last category would be things that the board on their own would direct us to keep them apprised of. Um, and so if there are particular issues that you are familiar with in any fashion, uh, because it's part of your day job and you know that this is an issue in most organizations, you read about it on the news. There's a report of some hospital executive you know, being thrown in jail for this, that, or the other, and you say, tell me what you're doing on this. Uh, or it's an issue that used to be an issue that you haven't heard anything about in a while, and you say, tell me about this. So that's you know, how the, you know, on one level, the governing board, you know, basically has, you know, an agenda of material to monitor, you know, coming up in any one of those four ways, but in some respects, the most important one being that last one, and that's the individual board members, you know, using their own judgment as to things that they would want to have information about because they either know it's a risk, they have been told it's a risk, or logic dictates that it's a risk that needs to be, and the board needs to understand that it's being addressed appropriately by the organization. So I, I hear you, Mike, uh, as, and there's always the avenue open for any of the members of the committee bringing things. One of the things is that because, you know, Rick is independent in that sense, I, I just want to make sure that the kind of fiduciary or oversight that this committee brings is only as good besides the some of the others that we might bring as good as the information that's given to us. And I know we meet four times a year and part of the time, like the second meeting, will be a lot more about the external audit process and, you know, we'll be focusing on that in our 90 minutes together. Just having that sense so that there are some of the issues that we have a greater sense of some of the other issues that are happening, even if it's not brought at a meeting, is it posted somewhere on board effect or the other? I don't know what you all feel. It might just feels like some things might just not come If the only thing that gets to us is what someone decides to get to us, us. if we don't have some bigger pool of data... Um, well, it, I, I, and I don't think it's only what's this. You know, we there are certain things that we feel, based upon the the standard which is applied to this board, and, and it's a standard developed in a case called Caremark, which basically says that the board has to exercise the duty of care, and that's basically you know the the uh, <coughs> you know that you know as a governing board member, you have an obligation to you know basically make you know reasonable inquiries you know that are related to you know the uh, business. Uh, and so it's not every, you know, thing, it's, uh, it's not nothing or it's not only what's reported to you. In many respects, the things that automatically come to you in large part satisfy that obligation because those things, again, like I say, are the result of outside regulatory activity. They're the result of, you know, inside regulatory activity. Uh, and they're the result of independent regulatory in activity in that these, you know, the complaints that come to the hotline are not initiated by anybody on the inside or you know by people who are in charge of these things as far as it goes. But that fourth element, again, is 
you know, a function of, you know, just individual expertise or acquired expertise. And that, you know, you as a board member, you know, decide, okay, I think that this is an important issue for a healthcare organization. And it could be anything. It could be billing. It could be patient safety. It could be workplace safety. Anything. I mean, that's left to your entire discretion as to what you tell us you want us to do in addition to the things that we're already doing. Um, and then that way, that basically assures to some degree that you're not just hearing things that we want you to hear. At any point, you know, you can say, I want you to report on fill in the blank. And then we have an obligation to report that to you because you as a committee have determined that's important, you know, to understanding the, you know, the organization you know, is doing something. And, and so that's why, you know, we also sort of incorporate, you know, uh, you know, you know, training and education or, or information about things going on. You know, Rick, you know, periodically reports on, you know, compliance enforcement activity which is happening in other venues, you know, just to give you a sense of things which have caused problems elsewhere. And again, you know, uh, you know, just speaking specifically, you know, there was an article, you know, which, or uh, incident we shared with you, you know, about a problem at Kaiser, you know, and, you know, some embezzlement that had occurred. As a board member, you know, you, you know, you, you can bring those things to our attention and tell us, report to us on how we're avoiding this particular issue. Um, you, if we report something like that to you, you could tell us that you want some sort of follow-up on it as far as it goes. So, so yes, there is a certain you know, uh, body of work which we bring to you, but you know, that's not to say that there's nothing else that you can require us to do. It's just you know, a question of you know, articulating, you know, at any point in time, you know, that uh, we want you to focus on this particular item or this particular issue. But we also rely to a great extent on the fact that we're following the OIG's, right, requirements for having a compliance plan in place, and we rely to a great extent on our compliance officer for being able to identify those areas of risk specifically within the compliance program, right? That, that's true, you know, because I, you know, Rick will probably get to this, and he's already touched upon it a bit, but in terms of, you know, both doing the risk assessment, you know, that uh, informs both the internal, you know, the annual internal audit plan and the annual compliance plan, you know, part of that analysis stems from what OIG has said, you know, what other regulatory bodies have said are areas of enforcement, um, you know, focus, you know, for a particular time. And so, you know, if OIG says, you know, this year we're focusing on this particular issue, you know, then, you know, we know and understand that. Um, we provide, you know, to the board um, a copy of the OIG's work plan for the year each year so you understand you know, from, from that level what that body is interested in. And quite frankly, a lot of the other regulatory activity sort of flows from that, you know, in that once they've determined that these are areas that need addressing, you know, then other state agencies will look at it, other federal agencies will look at it. But that also informs, you know, our plan. And our audit plan isn't going to be everything on the OIG work plan because some of that stuff we may not have a concern about. Some of that stuff, you know, doesn't apply to us. Some of that stuff is a lesser priority than other priorities we might have. But again, it's entirely appropriate for the board to say, you said that this is something you want to, we want you to do this. And it could be this in addition to all those things or this in, a, in place of those things. And you can do that based upon, you know, your own independent, um, 
determination, you know, based upon, you know, your reading, your research or whatever, that this is an issue that you aren't satisfied has been adequately addressed to the board in terms of how this organization is dealing with it. So are we going to see a presentation on the new OIG work plan and how yeah. our audit calendar tracks with the new OIG work plan? Is that something that we see or...? You know, I, we have not typically done it in the fashion of this is the OIG work plan and so now this is how, you know, we're doing it. You know, typically we post the OIG work plan, you know, to board effect. Um, the OIG, it's a little, the, the timing of Rick's presentation of the audit plan is a little bit off skew within that plan is actually published, but you know, I'm sure we could look at marrying those two up a little bit more so you can see the connection. I, I think it's a good exercise to, to probably put this committee through to kind of highlight what's new in the OIG work plan and how the audits are going to track with making sure that we're in compliance with the things that the OIG is going to be looking for for the next year. Yeah, and I it's think a good when, exercise. when Rick, you and I spoke, one of the things that we said was that in the if the annual year, we should have like a board education on audit and compliance ones so that besides the work that we are doing, the entire board knows which are the, you know, areas that, right. that, that we are doing. So that probably would be wrapped into our full board education. The other, the, I, I really, one thing I appreciate, Rick, is that besides thinking about what's salient right now in the current what, what we want audit and compliance is also to be looking at the emerging issues and to be learning from others so often you bring us articles and things that where you're uh, actually uh, you know looking prospectively at what might be some of the issues that are coming up and doing that so the only thing that I would ask very much uh, on behalf of uh, for myself but hopefully on behalf of this committee is that I know that sometimes um, the capacity or the staff capacity might limit what you are able to do and if that is a criteria that you would bring that to us that actually 20 things are really important but I'm only doing 10 because I have one staff because that is something as an audit and compliance committee we need to know that there are actually other issues that might not be finding the on the radar. Okay. So as far as the uh, issues reported to the hotline, when we get back to that section, there are uh, some of the newer issues that have been reported that are outstanding, so you'll see what kind of issues those are when we get to that point. Okay? Uh, so this slide was uh, just saying that under the U.S. Federal Sentencing Guidelines, we get credit if we have a compliance program in place, so that's a good thing. If we didn't have one, then we could get uh, slammed pretty hard if, if an issue was identified. And your responsibilities are basically to understand that we have a program and, and how it functions, and I would be happy to talk more about that uh, at future meetings. Uh, so, there's kind of a fine line here, uh, compliance, legal, internal audit, uh, all kind of do similar activities and we work together a lot uh, to make sure that we get these, uh, any issues identified resolved, but we are also kind of independent from each other and that we're, you know, doing our own things 
until we see some overlap and then we get the other areas involved to make sure we have the best solution for the organization. So, we have any other questions or? You had a slide here that, you know, we did not show, but in your uh, thing, and I just wanted to run this by <clears throat> our committee. We are right on time, so we, we need to. But this is what generally the expectations of the board is so that we can get some clarification of what success uh, means is that um, does when you bring any report to us, does the approach to the audit seem reasonable? Did the scope seem thorough? Was the audit conclusion reasonable? Were management responses reasonable? Did the audit activity appear complete? Has this review contributed <coughs> to proper oversight by the committee? And for us to be able to do that, that issue tracking is what you do to make sure that this is what it is. But if there are Again, any other questions that you all bring from your financial perspectives or operational perspectives that you think should be included in, in our oversight of this committee, absolutely, you know. So one of the things that I do on every audit is I quantify the impact of that audit as, as well as I can uh, so that I can show the significance of why we need to fix this and why we need to do it soon. So if I identify an issue and I calculate that it's worth $3 million, then I wave my hands and, and get everyone's attention and make sure that we do something because this is worth $3 million. If it's a $10 issue, it's not even going to go in the report. Uh, but I, I think that quantifying it that way, and you, know, you can second guess the way that I quantify it, uh, but a lot of times it's because I identified this many claims that didn't get billed uh, and it, that's a real easy way of, of totaling it up and, and if you say that you know it's a million dollars in unbilled claims and that's worth about 20 cents on the dollar in actual cash then we know what the impact is and so we know how to prioritize that work uh, so it, it helps to get people's attention. Thank you, Rick. Okay. So, the other thing that you mentioned before the meeting, uh, I wanted to say a few things about some of the audits that have been done recently. Uh, so, a couple of years ago, I did the Meaningful Use Audit. Uh, we had about $8 million in uh, potential uh, revenue opportunities if we did certain things and so we were really trying to get more doctors on meaningful use, more doctors attesting every year. Uh, it, it was uh, important and we've, we've made some strides there but you know we need to continue that. We need to get more uh, doctors on EHRs and uh, get electronic health records and, and get everyone attesting that we can collect money from the government. Uh, I did the trauma review last year. Um, we had about $3.6 million in underpayments and we went back and rebuilt claims uh, so that we could collect that money. Uh, I reviewed the SNF billing and identified $7 million in unbilled charges. Uh, so 
we got current on billings. Uh, we actually found that there was uh, a glitch in the system that bills weren't dropping when they were supposed to. You're supposed to bill a, a skilled nursing facility every month at the end of the month, and some of them weren't going out. So we get the system fixed. We start monitoring to make sure that those are billed uh, timely. Uh, I looked at uh, implants and there was a process that was broken. You had to get an invoice for like a pacemaker. It had to be attached to the claim. Uh, accounting wasn't getting, or patient accounting wasn't getting those invoices, so they couldn't attach them to the claim. They had uh, $1.7 million in unbilled claims, so I worked with the areas to make sure that we set up a process to get those over timely, get everything billed. Uh, we did encounters without charges. Uh, we had all these encounters sitting out there that uh, the areas are supposed to reconcile daily to make sure that they put a charge in on every patient visit. And this was about $3 million worth of charges that ended up being billed as a result of going through and reconciling and, and identifying where charges should have been uh, placed. Or at, if nothing else, you bill a stat charge that was no fee just to close the encounter. Otherwise, we had these things sitting out there that looked like they should be billed. There's a question on, um, so you found a lot of underreporting on these billings and bills that were probably now subject to a timely filing requirement? Sometimes, yes. So, do we know what the financial impact might have been from the timely filing issues? Uh, no. So I, I look at that, I try to identify these things on a timely basis and get those billed so that we don't hit the timely filing limit, but I did not quantify how much uh, lost opportunity we had because of that. The second question I have is, I assume you're also then doing the professional side of the billing world. Yes. Your audits, right? Yes. And so are, are you looking at, you know, I'm sure you're looking at coding audits as well? Yes. So actually the coding audits are part of my compliance program and it's just started, uh, but we're looking at every provider practice, um, comparing them to uh, CMS uh, benchmarking, try to identify any aberrant practices, audit those claims, and then do some provider training to make sure that they're billing appropriately uh, going forward. You're looking at the E&M codes to see how they compare to CMS? Yes. Thank you, Rick. Moving on, we want to finish by at least uh, 4.50, so let's take about, um, you know, 10 minutes on the next section, and I'm going to ask uh, Dave to give us a brief overview of the external penetration. Will you do I don't know which uh, So the, I was going to open this up. Uh, we had the external penetration review, and uh, while a number of vulnerabilities were identified, uh, the bottom line was that AT&T, who did the review, did not penetrate our system, which is a good thing. Uh, so, we are doing some corrective action, uh, trying to uh, identify how to fix some of the vulnerabilities that were identified. 18 of the 20 uh, were related to one system, which was a homegrown system that was built years ago. 
and uh, would have to basically be replaced. Uh, so it's going to be a considerable effort, but uh, it, it needs to be sized and, and prioritized by IT to figure out how to how to replace that system. Oh, Rick, that was really, and for me, that's vague. I just I have no idea what that means. So would you give me a little more detail? So when you say vulnerability, and they weren't able to hack, to penetrate the system, so... Could you define both of those two things, and then tell me what were the vulnerabilities? I mean, you said an old system, but an old system that what was the vulnerability? And what number finding finding was it on the chart that we were ended out originally that I've now taken off Facebook? <laughs> yeah, I mean, was that it? Wow. <clears throat> yes. So I can I can be more specific that. The vulnerability that was found is we have the, the ref track system we have is running on Windows Server 2000. Windows Server 2000 has known vulnerabilities and Microsoft is not supporting that product anymore. So there are no patches coming out to fix those vulnerabilities. So that's where we get to the, it, we, there are known vulnerabilities that exist for that system. What, and so what's that's a vulnerability? Uh, a, a vulnerability is a, a way that uh, the system can be exploited that would allow an external person to get into that system and access it okay. and either Okay. Capture the data, destroy the data, alter the data, have some malicious activity against the data or that system. Okay, so if they couldn't get, if AT&T could not penetrate the system, how, what, is it because someone would be, be more capable than AT&T and that creates the vulnerability? Well, the vulnerability exists because if you had unfettered access to the system, you could exploit that known vulnerability and do something to the system. So what we have in place is we have firewalls, restrictions, limited access, to, so that so that you can't just get to it from the outside. So in this particular case, uh, AT&T was, was not able to penetrate our system at all until we gave them a key. So the first round of attack was um, try to access us if you can, without us giving you any access, what can you see, what can you do? And they weren't able to do anything from that, although they identified two areas that they called vulnerabilities because they said, well, because while we couldn't get in, by having this thing turned on, you give some, you give a better level of access than what normally you would like to be, like to have. There, there's a stronger way to do it, and you should do that instead of what you're doing. And so that's one level that they found. Once we gave them a key, we essentially let them through the door. <clears throat> then they were able to, and we gave them all of our public IP addresses. They were they were able to try to attack all of those and find what they could. What they found was there's this system that exists on Windows Server 2000 that has known vulnerabilities, and what's in the report are all those known vulnerabilities. Not that they could, because they couldn't access them and actually do something harmful to us, but they know those exist and they saw that server existed. So that's why they're identified as there are high-risk elements in there because if they are able to get into that, they could do considerable damage or collect a lot of data. So but they were not able to do that. Mm -hmm. So that's good news. So if you had a really good hacker, they might be able to get in and exploit those vulnerabilities. Let me be clear. They'd have to do. They'd have to know something different that was known in the universe today, on how to exploit what we have because AT&T is a really good hacker, and they were not able to do it. So it, it's at this point, there's no known way to exploit, to get around what we have in place. 
So how did we solve? How did we solve the problem? <coughs> what what did we? Do? So for the the specific problem with RetroTrack, we have to replace that system because it will not run on new hardware, new a different platform than it exists on today. So it has. So to does be that mean it's no longer available for use, no, or it's, it's sitting there being vulnerable until we replace? It, it's sitting there with those known with those known vulnerabilities until we replace it. And what does the replacement process entail, and how much are we talking about? Yeah, don't know how much we're talking about yet. So we have to identify what system can replace that feature functionality, and, and do go through a system selection process, implementation, acquisition, all of that. And so how it, long does that take? Uh, months. So we're sitting with a, and we were sitting with a vulnerability before. Right. And, you know, and, so you're playing your odds like insurance. So and, I, I and, get it. And um, we knew it. So what we're watching is to make sure that the. The places we do have in place to protect that stay solid to keep it protected. So, thank you. The little, the no longer mentioned chart set effort to remediate low, but you're not intimating that it's low. It's complicated. Yeah, there, um, yes, because there are both high, medium, low parts to it uh, in that. Three and so highs, one low. Yeah. <laughs> And, and you said that AT&T is, I mean, I, I just thought that, uh, you know, that, that they, they are a good... Yes, they are uh, very, very reputable in, in doing this type of business. This kind of external penetration test. Yeah, okay. to, to be clear, though, we're, we will not, next year when we do this again, it's, it's part of our required uh, meaningful use requirements to do a security risk assessment. Mm -hmm. And so on an annual basis, we do that. Part of that security risk assessment is <coughs> this vulnerability testing or penetration testing. We were delaying that because we're increasing our network access. We're, we're trying to make ourselves more reliable by adding Comcast to our AT&T network to have dual paths so that there's no single or multiple points of failure. It would have to be a poly failure to, to really lose all of our systems. And so by doing that, once we each time we add new network access, we want to test it again. So in this case, we, we have added the Comcast circuits to our network. We're going to be adding more. But we haven't completed it yet, but we allowed AT&T to do this test. Next year it'll be a different vendor that we have to do this test, because we don't want AT&T to test the same things with the same tools. We want right. a different vendor with different right. tools to try to attack us in a different way. Okay. So we will spread the wealth on this one of having different vendors work with us to attack our systems. Okay. Or attempt to attack us. Yeah. yeah. Any other questions on that? Okay, so let's talk about the 340B uh, program internal audit. Uh, I've done several reviews of 340B and pharmacy. Uh, this time, because of what we had seen in the uh, HRSA audit last year, I thought it would be a good idea to look at the uh, pricing and billing of 340B claims. and. There was a lot of them. We billed $15 million in charges. Uh, so I was looking at every uh, drug that was over $500 in cost and uh, a number of those that were under 500 just to see what kind of stuff was out there. Uh, what I found was some issues with some conversion tables in the CDM that uh, was actually causing the uh, drug to charge improperly. Uh, where we were dispensing three units, it was billing one, or if we were dispensing 450 units, it was billing one, uh, which meant that our reimbursement was very low. 
uh, we might spend $10,000 for a drug and we get reimbursed 70 bucks. Uh, so that was a, a bad thing, but I only found like nine different drugs that had this problem that were being billed improperly. We got with the denial unit, uh, identified every claim that had those drugs on it, and we were able to collect $1.1 million as a result of rebilling those claims. Congratulations. So it was a good thing. Uh, we got the CDM corrected so that uh, the charges would be processed accurately in the future. Uh, we also found some price discrepancies uh, on the pharmacy side where uh, the cost of the drug had gone up significantly and we had not updated that in our system. And since bills, uh, the billed charges is based on cost plus a markup, we were billing less than we should. And so we now have a process to uh, update the charges more frequently and make sure that we're on track with that. Thank you. And b being the 340B has been an issue in the sense with our HRSA requirements, you're recommending that this be monitored on a pretty regular basis. So at some yes. point in time, you'll come back um, maybe in the September meeting and tell us how that's going. So one of the uh, action items that we put in place is uh, we have a 340B oversight committee and we do re routine audits uh, every month to make sure that all the uh, 340B drugs are being uh, dispensed properly, that they're being billed properly, uh, and we keep monitoring that and uh, we'll initiate corrective action as we go. But it's something that, that does need to be uh, looked at on an ongoing basis. This is a standing committee then from your perspective that you're working with? Yes. Do you have others? What other committees that you have that are monitoring these kinds of things? Not this one specific, not not the 340 specifically. Are, do you have other other? Uh, the only that? ones that I'm on uh, would be the Compliance Steering Committee and this uh, 340B, well, and Revenue Cycle Steering Committee. Okay. Uh, so I'm on that also to uh, just kind of monitor the activities and make sure that we get things closed up as needed. Uh -huh. uh, so one of the uh, functions of the Revenue Cycle Steering Committee is also to keep track of the Toyon report uh -huh. uh, that I keep updating. And, and what about the areas in, in HR? You know, recently there's been, I think, concerns expressed to individual board members or people who had come before us talking about either how long it has taken to get to get hired or um, the issues relative to, and I think you even raised one before, of people still having their login keys to, you know, they've been, they've been let go, they've left the organization and they still have access to stuff in the organization. So is there a, is there a standing HR committee that, that you're working with relative to these kinds of issues? Uh, there may be a standing HR committee, but I'm not involved in that. That's something that maybe this panel might want, this committee may want to look at, Rick, is to, to figure out how our auditor can also assist in 
creating, I think, some more robust hiring practices and processes within the HR system. Luis, would some of that come, um, would be something that you would work with the HR to make sure that those kinds of things are, or that's not under your purview in the sense that, did you understand like access, you know, passwords are given out to other people and people who leave still have all of that. Who does it? That's totally the... Well, that, it's a, I mean, it's really a multidisciplinary process. I mean, some of that is managed by IT, some of it is managed by security. And most of it is managed by HR. So uh, that would be Jeanette, you know, who, who leads that team, working closely with that staff. And so, I mean, I agree. I think we have some opportunities to look at that entire process. Um, you know, especially as, as you know, people come and go. Um, so, and Dave, I know you had mentioned yeah. that you've started, you know, on a regular basis, communicating with HR to say, hey, if you guys are letting someone go, keep IT. Yeah, those those processes that. are all in place. So yeah, it's place. a function of uh, as as long as HR hits the button that's saying this person is terminated, all, all the steps happen. Their badge is deactivated, their equipment is recovered, their accesses are declined and determined, ended. So that's, as, as long as we get that notification, all the other process steps work very efficiently. HR has it's, it's getting that notification that someone's no longer here that we, that so the that Rick's followed up on, right, auditing that the managers are notifying HR that someone has termed is a big step in the process. That, that's it, why maybe the odd, your, your investment in HR might be worthy from a compliance perspective because, well, I, I get your point, it's the same point that somebody doesn't bill appropriately. So right. they didn't press right. the button to bill appropriately, we lose money. It's the same thing here that if they don't press the right button, and I think those are the kinds of auditing, auditing things. You know, I, I find it really, um, you know, it's a big system and there's a lot of stuff going on, so I don't mean critical, but in relationship to how long it takes somebody to get hired and processed, I, I find it really interesting that it it's so long. I mean, it just seems so long. But, you know, and, and I think that's the sort of issue that sort of real <coughs> illustrates one of the you know, sort of the, um, you know, the challenges of the system. And I go back to that slide that, you know, Rick showed, which, you know, is the uh, internal audit and the legal and the compliance, you know, because a lot of these things, you know, one of the early determination is who actually has responsibility for it and because who can fix it. So, for example, you know, the, the sort of classic, you know, uh, case might be, you know, a complaint involving harassment or discrimination right, right, or something right. along those lines. Well, you know, that might come in through the compliance hotline, but at some point there's a determination of whether this is a compliance issue whether or whether it's not, you know, because compliance isn't responsible for everything that might not be working right. They're only responsible for those things for which there's some regulatory or statutory obligation. And once they've determined we've got a policy which deals with this thing, we have people who conduct those investigations, then it's their responsibility. And it's no longer, at that point, a compliance issue becomes an HR issue. See, that, that's, I suppose, Mike, why, why I was, I'm still confused about the role of us and the audit committee. Because, you know, harassment is, in fact, a legal issue. But, yeah. So, you know, at, 
So if it goes to HR, it wouldn't come necessarily to an audit committee um, because Rick is not involved in it. So I'm trying to understand, I still can't understand what, what's your arena, strictly your arena, and what are those things? And then I heard you say, well, the board, if they felt there's some concerns, could also. So it yeah. just... So, so in the you know the, the case of the you know something which falls in HR, and this comes up in a number of different things. It could be you know a distinction you know between compliance and quality, or compliance and safety and compliance. The you know, the question you know typically for compliance is is that there's a regulatory requirement that you have this or do this and those types of things. Once it's clear that the issue goes beyond that. You know that you know essentially whatever is you know we're statutorily re required to do. If we've done that piece of it, then the resolution of that problem goes on to wherever it else is. So, with regard to harassment, we have an obligation to have a policy. We have an obligation to have a reporting system, and we have and there's an obligation that you know some sort of steps to be taken if that issue arises. Once it's been determined that this issue did not arise because of a failure of one of those pieces, and in the case of harassment, you know, what happened is somebody did something. It's not that we didn't have a policy that that occurred. It's not that, you know, we didn't have a reporting procedure that that occurred. It was that someone did something. And so that's the distinction which is drawn between the compliance. Now, if we didn't have a policy... Okay, st stay with that. And, and I'm, I'm not trying to... I really am not trying to be... Uh, obnoxious here. I really am trying to understand a thing. So in Rick going through the billing of a pharmacy, the correct pharmacy, I would imagine there is a compliance that you ought to bill correctly. You know, so what makes that more critical than this? Well, I don't know that it's a question of what's more critical or not critical. I think it's the nature of the issue. So if the question is somebody's just simply not doing their job or that somebody is acting in violation you know, of policies and procedures, that's different than the question of whether or not we have a procedure or a system in place to deal with a particular issue. Okay, so, st stay with that. I don't mean to interrupt, but stay with that so I can understand. So how would an audit committee know that there have been several, and I don't know that they're happy, this is an example, that there may have been several... Um, instances of uh, harassment, of sexual harassment or, or racial harassment or in whatever those kinds of personnel practices might be. Um, how does the board know that those things have come up if they just go to somebody else to resolve? So... Well, so, and again, you know, I mean, I think one point of analysis about any instance which comes up is, you know, not only what happened there, but how does this relate to anything else that we know. And so let me give you another example which might help. You know, so I review all of the property claims. So if someone comes in the hospital or someone's in our care um, and they allege that they did not get back their personal property, clothes, backpacks, or things along those lines. So, you know, we pay out a, a you know, significant number of those claims. Generally speaking, you know, each individual piece of that is not a compliance issue. It's just simply someone didn't fill out a form correctly, someone lost something, something got stolen, what have you. But part of what I'm looking at is, is there a system here? Right. Because right. if, in fact, you know, we didn't have an inventory system, then that 
would probably be at least a risk issue, if not a compliance issue. Um, but if it's just simply a question of these systems aren't working effectively, then it's not necessarily I going see. to be a compliance issue. However, it can get to a point, you know, where if it's so broken that it then, you know, becomes. And so there's sort of, so one individual case, it's not this, you know, right, but a couple right. of cases it could be this, and mm -hmm. if an entire bunch of things, then it could involve, you know, all of it. And, you know, the idea is, you know, we only, we have limited resources in terms of auditing compliance, so we want to use them in the best fashion possible. And so if there's somebody else who should be fixing a problem, it shouldn't be Rick's people doing that. He might identify it. He might be a resource to help them address it. You know, and so, you know, he mentioned the fact that, you know, what can be oftentimes will, you know, determine the regulatory requirements and needs and then educate other people about it. But at the end of the day, it's up to, you know, a manager to deal with that employee who engaged in that behavior, which was, you know, inappropriate. If it, you know, got to the point, you know, where we had observed enough of these things where it appeared that there was some failure of a system or a failure of some fundamental obligation, you know, do we in fact have a policy? Are we in fact conducting training on this issue which is sufficient to, you know, effectively meet our obligation? You know, that's the sort of thing. And so, for so example... So then it's up to the administration to determine... Um, that something is out of the ordinary in terms of a system error, you know. Let's say in the, the example we're talking about that you're now having 10 or 12 complaints of this nature and that would certainly alert you to something else. Is that is that what I'm understanding? Yes, generally speaking. And, you know, I mean some of it is just based on, it's based upon the nature of the particular issue and how that sort of compares. And, you know, 10 or 12, you know, complaints of this may mean, may be immaterial on one subject area, but it may be significant in another, you know, and you know, so depending upon it. And, and again, you know, sort of then sort of closing the loop is, you know, you know, again, these are any of these things are the types of things, you know, where, you know, uh, the board, you know, calling out or, you know, requesting, you know, specific response around a particular issue, you know, is part of, you know, what can be done. Because, again, we're doing these things based upon our, our best evaluation of what constitutes, you know, the, the greatest um, or the most significant issues for Spoken. the organization, you know, to be yes. dealing with. So. Mm -hmm. Thank you. The, uh, moving on, the rest of the things were written reports, so these are just kind of status updates. These are ongoing things that at every audit meeting we look at, like things that came out of the master external audit, and, in, and then the other tracking things. So uh, any questions about that, or do you want to pull out any one or two uh, highlights? The only thing that I would say on page 23 of the packet uh, is my uh, report on the annual plan uh, where I've said that we are on time and page 24 yeah. shows the uh, basic schedule and while I don't exactly adhere to the dates that I planned because things come up, uh, I've pretty much stuck with uh, these are the projects. Uh, one thing I would bring up, I, I had an audit of the observation process scheduled to make sure that we were accurately uh, documenting observation visits and then billing them appropriately. Uh, so I was expecting that, that to be implemented and 
it hasn't been done yet. Mm -hmm. I can't audit it until it's done. And since the committee asked me to look at the IT access again, uh, I've replaced the observation process with the IT access so that I can get that project worked in and uh, let everyone know that we're, we're terminating access uh, appropriately. On some of these audits that have um, <clears throat> that you're reporting, I was a little confused in the stupor on the airplane, mm -hmm. on the dates that have been crossed out and then a new date has been added, does that mean it, we're pushing it off a year or it's something we're tracking every year? Uh, it was due to be complete uh, according to the management action plan at a certain time and they didn't finish and now have given me a new date. Uh, but there are a lot of them that have been put off a year, six months. Um, yes. Is that appropriate? Any of them that pose risks? Um, and do you have the ability if management says it's due June, they want to come back June of 2020, can you push back and say, no, this is really something that needs to be done in three months, and if it doesn't, you report it to the audit committee? Yes. So I work with management and try to get a reasonable date, and if they don't accomplish that, then they have to explain to me why this new date is better and we negotiate on the timeline based on what it, what it is that has to be done to get that uh, action completed. So sometimes it's taking longer than it should, but sometimes it's uh, in conjunction with a much bigger project, and it won't be done until the bigger project is done. So if we're rebuilding Sorian Financials, uh, there's a target date for that completion and so some of these other things will tie in with that project whereas it was it started out to be a standalone fix uh, and then it somehow mushroomed into something much larger. I mean we talked about employee notification and here it's not due to be fixed until October 31st of this year. 17 uh, yeah that seems like a really long so, um, NSC to charges professional fees again June of this year. I mean, there's some really, uh, anyway. Yes, yeah, so the, the IT project uh, on access, we put actions in place. <coughs> this was more specific to you got to get people out of the system, you got to get their email terminated, you got to get, uh, take them out of the phone book. Uh, and this is an identity management project that's going to interface with. Uh, most of the systems in the organization and therefore uh, it's much larger. Uh, the basic uh, issue that I had identified earlier was that we're not getting timely notification to IT. Uh, we worked with HR and fixed that process. So I think that it's going to be okay, but we'll find out as soon as I finish the audit uh, if it's improved or not. And this is a, a more systematic, a more robust process to make sure that things get done timely. That audit was completed in 2014, and we're still talking about it. Right, so there's been many different partial, partial solutions put in place, but we've not created and implemented the full identity management system yet, so that's what's still working here. But we've put different processes in place to address this issue of how does when HR pushes that button, that information get out to all the right people to make sure that happens? And so that's what we're looking now is to 
hardwire that with new system in place as opposed to all of the different intermediate processes we put in place. So that's why this data has been pushed out for that, what we're deeming to be the final solution to that. I have a question on meaningful use, and it looks like we pushed it out now to 22818. Mm. Is that because with the existing system, we're not going to be able to achieve meaningful use, and therefore we'll <coughs> until a new system is implemented? So this would be uh, actually rolling out uh, the meaningful, well, the EHR to Alameda and San Leandro and getting them on the same system. I think we're talking about page 28. Yep. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's fine. Oh, pilot points. Yes. So this is the morphing from the original plan, which was we were going to roll out Soarin Ambulatory to the Highland Base Clinics. We stopped our next-gen rollout back in 2013 mm -hmm. to move to Soarin Ambulatory. Cerner then acquires Soarin, stops that project. Now we're going to roll out, going back to roll out next-gen. So now this is the date that gets us to that rollout plan. Right. And. The dollars are declining dollars, right? So if you achieve meaningful use by 2018, we... Right. So what we've done, another interim step to get us there, is for every physician that is potentially going to meet meaningful use had to sign up for meaningful use in 2016. So we worked with Umetra, who's the regional extension agent, to do that and, and registered every physician we could register for 2016. Okay. So now as we move forward, this was the last year to register to get funding through meaningful use. So this would be retro? So it's not retro, we already no. did it. We already registered all of them. Yeah, yeah, so they are all... So they're all in the system now and received money this year for meaningful use for that. We still need to roll the system out to get subsequent funding from that and yeah. to achieve meaningful yeah. use. And so we're doing that through this uh, February of 18 is the date that we've set to roll out to all of the clinics. But it won't be the same as if you had been meaningful use in the first year or so. Generally, yes. Those that don't go live until 18 will miss one year of reimbursement, which is $8,600 per provider. So that's a smaller number than the, than the large the majority that will be up on the system. It, the other um, audit is a physician comp. Is there a physician comp audit just to see that it's market? No. That's the AHP thing, or is that separate from the physician comp? Physician comp on medical directorships and any other payments made to physicians. That might be definitely a good one to. It's just a, it's a good audit to just check the market rates to make sure that none of your physician comp is outside of market rate, which could raise some red flags. Yeah, well, and we do do a fair, uh, so there's an independent fair market value analysis that we do with all of our physician contracting. And that is actually overseen by uh, uh, one of the folks who works for me in conjunction with the contracting department. And we've actually you know, just recently looked at revamping that uh, to go to a new, we're actually bringing on a new vendor to conduct those analysis. So we do third party analysis to conduct the FMV and then you know, basically the decisions. There is the piece that that analysis done, but at the end of the day, whatever actually ends up in the contract, you know, um, and I generally know anecdotally when it moves outside of that range, but, you know, as you, as you point out at some point, you know, just the audit 
determine that the actual numbers do comply with the FMD is not a bad thing to look at. Yeah, no, it's always good to have that audit somewhere in your files. Okay. Okay. Um, the calendar, as you see, so first thing is to the board, we're going to bring the, you know, the audit committee dates for the meeting that have been changed from what we approved as the board approved. So audit will be following um, the finance meeting for June, September, and November, <laughs> one week earlier than you thought. But the, our calendar for this year, as you can see, for our June meeting, we'll be doing the old business, the track issue tracking and status reporting as always for all of the um, June, September, and November meetings, but we'll also be adding the annual external audit plan and some of these internal audit rep, uh, reporting. And then your, our September will be <coughs> results, compliance report, and uh, November is again usually, um, what, what, what are the ones that are Asterisk that with the assumptions that it'll be completed on time. Yes, which we're pretty sure it will be completed. Uh, Moss Adams has done a, a pretty good job for us, uh, pushing us through the audit and, and getting things done timely. And can we expect that this this year it will be quarterly? Because I know last time we met more often than you know we met pretty much every other month. Um, as of now, it, we are looking at, uh, unless there are some significant needs, that we are looking at four meetings, three yes. more meetings for the year. So we had actually uh, had MGO come and report at every audit committee meeting because of the problems that we had had with timeliness and mm -hmm. trying to make sure that we uh, developed a little bit better relationship and kept them on track. And uh, it, it didn't work real well. So Moss Adams has, has come in. They've had a completely different approach to the audit. Uh, it, a lot of new uh, test work that had not been done before and, and a lot better results, I think. Okay. Also, well, that's our calendar. And we will work to make sure that we add one, um, Madam Chair, one education component of the audit for this year. We you know, something for the full board. If, oh, if for audit? Sure. For one of, on one of the education. <clears throat> Both are business meetings, but one of the meetings. All right. Any other trustee? May I ask on the Toyon report on um, 3A, there was an item that was supposed to be completed on 11 30 2016. Was that done? No, I don't know. Page 60. So a lot of these items. Uh, they were due, and that one is to putting stat charges uh, or statistics into uh, some of our reporting for San Leandro and Alameda Hospital. And I attempted to follow up on that uh, a number of times, and I have not gotten with the person responsible. Uh, so it's uh, one of those items I could not update for this meeting, but I will have uh, that response for the next one. And I'm, I'm hoping it was done on time because they said they were very close back at the November meeting. Uh, but I have not had a, time, a chance to get that response and follow up to make sure that the action was sufficient. And what about on page uh, 16? 
61, number 8, the community clinics are in an area that wants review of staffing and scheduling. So that was uh, tied to the budget process and the people responsible for that, uh, that's between the CMO and the CFO, and I have not gotten an update on that one either. That's so do those, let's put those two for, um, you know, those, those I will be continuing to monitor and update those for the next meeting. Thank you. Any other? Oh, with that, I think. Hey, um, Vanessa, any requests for public comment? Okay, so with that, you adjourn the meeting. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. All right, meeting adjourned. Thank you. <clears throat>